Hello, and a very happy St George's Day for next Monday to our upstanding English listeners. I'm Dorian Liskin, hanging out the bunting with me for the nation's favourite Greek-Palestinian, are two of our regulars. Peter Collins is our resident armchair brexologist. Hi, Peter, how are you? Splendid. And here's Naomi Smith, Chief Operating Officer at Best for Britain, although, of course, she's here in a private capacity. Hi, Naomi, you've had a busy week uh, supporting the launch of the People's Vote campaign, and we're going to talk about that in a bit. But I want to ask you first about something to do with last week's show when we had Philomena Kunk's writers Jason Hazley and Joel Morris on. You spotted an interesting tweet from one of our listeners about why writers are obsessed with Brexit. Why is this? Yeah, no, it's really interesting, um, and not least because um, Jason and Joel had actually talked about how difficult it is to write about Brexit. Um, and uh, I suppose, you know, when you're writing for the BBC, perhaps even more so. But um, one of our listeners who um, you should all go and follow, her name is at Nick Ransom, so that's N-I-C and Ransom with an E on the end, is a scriptwriter, And she wrote this excellent thread about why Brexit is the story that just keeps on giving uh, and is a real gift to storytellers. So and I obviously won't go through it verbatim here um, and you should all go and have a read. But she was basically saying that whether you're a writer of dystopia or comedy or thriller or non-fiction, Brexit lends itself to every genre um, and it has this sort of really uh, you know, compellingly irresistible fact that the ending hasn't been written yet. So it sort of leaves so many uh, things open to the um, to the imagination. And, and of course, all the characters are mostly mad, bad or sad, uh, with more plot twists than the Pepsi Max <laughs> big one uh, in Blackpool. So a uh, total rollercoaster ride for everyone. Today's special guest is the SNP's deputy leader in Westminster, Kirsty Blackman. She's been the MP for Aberdeen North since 2015. She's the SNP spokesperson on the economy and she was controversially censured in 2016 for bringing her two young kids to a meeting of the Scottish Affairs Committee, which surely would make kids sleep soundly and quietly a Commons Committee. It did, and the problem was that she fell asleep. Um, and I wasn't allowed to... I, I couldn't take her and have her sitting on my knee, even though she was asleep during the meeting. So she clearly wasn't interrupting at all. But yes, it's been an interesting roller coaster ride of the three years nearly that I've been a parliamentarian. <laughs> that, that incident just seemed like a kind of one of those ridiculous sort of throwbacks that, that comes up in kind of like, you know... The etiquette of the commons. Exactly. But we have actually managed to get some level of change. So now you're alleged to take your small children in with you if you're going to vote. So it used to be that you could take them into the voting lobby, but you couldn't take them through the chamber to do so, which made things very difficult if you were trying to vote in the other lobby and had to walk around the whole building in order to get there. So they've done a little bit of changes. But, but they can't vote for you. They can't vote for me, no, okay. sadly. That would be so helpful if it I could would, just send it? them in. You know, get them to do things like doing the cleaning, cleaning the table and stuff like that. It'd be great if they could do things like that for me. Or we could have an official um, parliamentary childminder. I'm thinking Jacob Rees-Mogg. <laughs> I'm also thinking the child catcher from that film. Anyway, but yeah. He'll return them with new Latin names. Sextius <laughs> Flavia. So why can't the English sort of celebrate St George's Day in a kind of way that doesn't make uh, a lot of people queasy? Is it? Do you need a... a sort of an underdog sort of backstory to to kind of celebrate a kind of national day in, in, in a purely positive sense. I'm delighted for people to celebrate St George's Day. I think it's great. I'm not sure... Um uh, I'm not sure. We, we should celebrate all of the national days. So we should celebrate St George's Day. We should celebrate St Andrew's Day. We should do all of these things. I mean, everybody goes about it in a different way. So for St Andrew's Day, we like to eat haggis and drink whiskey, which suits us quite nicely. Um, I haven't spent many St George's Days in England, so I'm not exactly sure what happens in the, in the streets of England. I don't know. I think it's a, it's just sort of discomfort. <laughs> Eating jelly deals and drinking mead. It's not not as attractive as a prospect, is it? Well, a few months ago we talked about um, Orwell's notes on nationalism and this kind of distinction between kind of healthy patriotism and dangerous nationalism, which the Scots seem very good at. 
What, what is the secret to...? There's been some interesting pieces written on the fact that in Scotland we've got a kind of a civic nationalism rather than an ethnic nationalism. And if you think about how the SNP policy around immigration, for example, and actually pretty widely held by most politicians in Scotland, whether they're SNP or not, you know, we're much more pro-immigration because our population is de- would decline without immigration. We're not having babies fast enough, so therefore we need to have people come and live in our country. And I think we're much more excited and positive about that and some of the feeling in the in the, the Brexit referendum of, that was anti-immigration wasn't reflected in Scotland and the people that I spoke to because we just don't have that level of anti-immigration sentiment. Yeah, English nationalism for, I mean, probably going back a long way, it does seem to be associated with sort of whiteness which is odd given, you know, St George's <laughs> <laughs> heritage uh, and that seems to be something that, 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 Scot- yeah, that Scotland seems to have avoided it is. It's really bizarre. So in in my constituency, after people that are born in the UK, sorry, in my city, after people that are born in the UK, the next most common nationality is Polish, then Romanian, then Nigerian, and then Indian. So you know they come before all of the other EU nationalities in my constituency, and you know our the vast majority of them are not white, and it's just kind of uh, the way that Aberdeen works. It's just mm. um, we've got lots of people of lots of of different colours and. It, I don't know, I, there doesn't seem to be that kind of anti-immigration, ethnic feeling. But nonetheless, as you say, we're you know passionately nationalist in that we are looking for Scotland to be an independent country. That's the SNP, not necessarily the other parties. Um, looking for Scotland to be an independent country because we see the kind of economic and social and cultural benefits of that. But it's not about being, it's not about closing us off. It's not about putting up the walls. It's about being an independent country, taking our own democratic and economic decisions, um, but continuing to be part of a wider world. Well, we'll I'll continue to just cringe, I think, on, on Monday. I won't be flying any flags. We'll be talking to Kirsty throughout the show, uh, as well as what else, Peter? Well, this week, what is the Remain umbrella group People's Vote all about? And is it finally the unifying force that Remainers have been looking for? Naomi was there, and she's going to tell us all about it. Plus, the chickens of Theresa May's hostile environment for illegal immigrants come home to roost this week, as the scandalous treatment of the Windrush generation became public knowledge. Thousands of Commonwealth citizens who arrived in Britain as children are now finding in their 50s and 60s that despite a lifetime of working and paying tax, they suddenly have to prove they have the right to be here. And they face the risk of deportation. Almost 160,000 thousand people signed a Commons petition demanding an amnesty and the government was forced into a U-turn, agreeing to meet Commonwealth leaders and to set up a task force to sort out the problem. What does this say about the government and the Prime Minister's attitude to immigration? And can we put anti-immigrant feeling back in its box? And in slow, painful progress on Brexit news, are the Lords going to inflict a series of defeats on Theresa May? The Upper House is about to examine the EU withdrawal bill and as we recorded this podcast on Wednesday, it looked like the Lords were about to amend it to keep open the option of staying in a customs union with the EU. What does that all mean? We'll find out later. Before we get started, two small announcements. Firstly, don't forget to vote for Romaniacs in the Listener's Choice category at the British Podcast Awards. It's a big deal. It's one that really matters because it's the will of the people. Just go to britishpodcastawards.com slash vote and enter Romaniacs. You might win two tickets to the event as well and with luck we'll see you there waving from the winner's podium. And in other podcast news, regular listeners will know that we had Nick Clegg on the show at the end of last year, and he was very good too. The former Deputy PM and Art Remainer is very much a convert to the world of podcasts, and now he's launching his own show, Anger Management, produced by the backroom team behind Romaniacs. It's about how anger is shaping the world, from Trump to Brexit to fake news and populism. And Nick Clegg's going to be talking to major figures from politics and culture about the battle between rage and reason. 
In the first episode, Out Now, he takes on the most daunting figure in the new era of rage-driven politics, Romaniac's favourite, Nigel Farage. And here's a bit of what happened. I just want to just focus a bit on this, on the people. So, we, I mean, we can make claim and counter so about whether people have shifted. The, on the young people, listen, yeah. you, you and others have said we are leaving because that is the democratic choice. Mm-hmm. On young people, it is not the democratic choice that they made, right? I mean, estimates vary a bit, but, but yeah. the turnout was relatively high for 18 to 24-year-olds by historical standards, over 60%. And over 70% of those are estimated to have voted to remain. There is no, in, in my experience, you tell me you're a historian or you have a great interest in history, I don't know of any other mature democracy that takes such an abrupt and radical decision about its future against the explicit stated wishes of those who have to inhabit the future. I, to say to them, well, they're, well, they're kind of they're getting over it. They're reconciled. It's not really a good answer. It's, it's, it's very it's odd, democratically. It's it? very very odd because across the rest of Europe, what is happening? It's the youth who are rebelling. Oh, I know, but that's not what happened. No, 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 no. I mean, you may I, not like it, no, but no, that's not what happened. But, but this is really interesting, isn't it? Had we, as you wished, joined the euro, it would have been the youth yeah, no, that had taken no, us. I'm talking about now, right? right? Let's not talk but about all across Europe. The under thirties are rebelling against the European yeah, Union. They did government. Here, my point is that, and I don't think they. Frankly, I think there is a total failure in our education system at both secondary and at university level. <laughs> Nigel, we are not hear teaching, yourself speak. We you are sound not like the establishment people. you criticise We it. are not teaching people critical thinking but, anymore. We're teaching people this is the right point of view and anybody Nigel, that holds an alternative point of view is a bad person. Nigel, I really genuinely didn't expect this of you. You are now literally sounding like the establishment you criticise. You don't l- appear to either like or accept the reality. No, I know why. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You're saying it's because of education or they're not doing what other young people do in other parts of Europe. They did. The overwhelming majority of young people, and by the way, in as much as cephalogical evidence is worth anything, suggests that young people still fiercely believe that this is the wrong future being imposed upon them. You can't wish it away and say our education's wrong or they should behave like young people elsewhere. They didn't. You have said, others have said, we're doing this as an act of democracy. I think it is profoundly undemocratic to do something which is so against the will of those who have to live with the consequences of it. Well, well, a country is made up of different regions, of different people, um, and it was a collective vote. I mean, I'm astonished. What do you say to the young people? I'm astonished. I'm astonished that the young people look upon the European Union as being this bright, (laughs) shiny future. You said you're astonished. That's not the point. They do, Okay, You have to just kind of get over that. But, Nick, they will change their minds. Ah. They will change their minds. You sound like every inch... establishment politician. They will, no. they will find out they're wrong eventually. So that's Nick Clegg versus Nigel Farage from the new podcast Anger Management with Nick Clegg. So it's all sorted. Young people are going to change their minds. Peter, what did you make of that? Well, so Farage is in favour of the will of the people, but it turns out it's actually the, just the will of the old people that he's in favour of, not the young <laughs> yeah. people. He's in favour of the will of the people when the people in question agree with him, but if not, they're wrong and they have to change their minds. He wants Britain to go a completely separate way from Europe, but he thinks all of its young people should follow these young Europeans who he claims are turning Eurosceptic. So who would have thought Nigel Farage a hypocrite? What a surprise. Well, I think the secret to... Uh, it's, not, it's not really a secret, but the kind of the key, to, the key to right-wing politics at the moment seems to be a complete lack of recognition of the concept of hypocrisy, which is incredibly liberating because I think so many people are held back by, like, what if I say this thing there but then something else that contradicts it? Won't that be bad? And then they go, no, it doesn't matter. You just do whatever you want. You, know, you feel no shame and then you sort of plough on. And, and, you, and you carry on being an angry winner. It's it's something that Chris Morris, as today, the day-to-day fame once said, that he said, thick people are very good at winning arguments because they're too thick to realise they've lost. <laughs> I think we're seeing a few examples of that in the air at the moment. I just want to bring back a little bit of shame, not like the bad shame, not the kind of Game of Thrones walk of shame shame, but just the idea that you should, you should be embarrassed mm. that if you're caught out on a lie rather than just going, 
onto the next lie. Yeah, yeah. failing if, up. They all fail up. They lie, they get caught out, and it doesn't hurt them, and they carry on doing it. Because if shame existed, Boris Johnson would not be anywhere alive. <laughs> I don't know. But actually, I think it's gone too far the other way. So we've had a situation where politicians are so not able to say that they did something wrong. They're not able to say that, you know, they they stand up in Parliament and they're questioned. But didn't you say this last week? And they they are so unable to say, I'm sorry, I said the wrong thing, it was a mistake, Mm. that they end up in a situation where they'd rather do double backflips at the dispatch box than try and admit that there was any kind of wrongdoing. And Nigel Farage is doing that, but he's not even admitting Mm. that, you know, he's not even trying to do double backflips. He's just saying the opposite of what he said last week. You'd think you'd think that that would produce an enormous opening for a new type of honest politician, a kind of mm-hmm. Emmanuel Macron type figure, to come forward and say, "This is crazy. When we make mistakes in our government, we will admit to it and we'll put things right." Why doesn't that happen? What 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 is it that's stopping this sort of sensible attitude to admit that everybody make mistakes and put things right? I I really don't know. Um, I think it's quite difficult if you're if you're a politician, you're trying to convince everybody to trust you, and you're trying to convince everybody that you are trustworthy and you will take the right decisions. It's quite difficult for people to say, "Oh, sorry, I took the wrong decision." But actually, you would get a lot more respect if mm. you did say that. If you said, "Sorry, I screwed up. I won't do it again. I've learned from my mistake." You know, blah blah blah. That would be something that would be more likely to make your constituents trust you, I think, and vote for you again than trying to you know, lie and bluff your way through it. It seems like you're thinking because in most areas of life, like in a in a you know in a sort of an argument, um, that if someone says sorry, I just instantly go oh right, like it, it sort of it really kind of allows you to move forward. And yet in politics, that seems to be something that you can't do. Even and and some people seem actually incapable. One of the worst of things is I'm sorry if I offended you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and what's Theresa May's thing? We'll, we'll talk about this, but Theresa May's apology for Windrush was sorry for sort of any inconvenience, which Ugh. is what you say when like a tube has been delayed, and it's like yeah. like any like if there's been some yeah. inconvenience. I'm sorry if isn't an apology. That's the point. And Boris yeah. Johnson did it the other week when he was he was calling uh, Emily Thornberry by her husband's name and so on. <gasps> I'm sorry if. Well, that's not that's not an apology. And what there should be a rule in Parliament to say sorry. You're going. You're either going to apologise or you're going to not apologise. You can't. You can't have it both ways. Yeah, we just have apology training. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> I'm really good at apologising. I'm good at getting things wrong <laughs> and then apologising. So I could. I could do those classes. Okay, on to the week in Brexit. People's Vote launched last Sunday with news from Sir Patrick Stewart that Professor Charles Xavier, leader of the X-Men, would definitely have voted Remain if he were British and real. <laughs> A coalition of prominent Remainers attended the launch of the Electric Ballroom in Camden, North London, including Anna Subri, Chukra Munna, Femi Oluwole, Lord Donis and Caroline Lucas, only one of whom has appeared on the show so far. Mm. But they found time to turn up to the Electric Ballroom. (laughs) Nine grassroots organisations and a series of business and community leaders are uniting behind one anti-Brexit message, not before time. People's Vote isn't talking about a second referendum, that is a banned phrase, but a first referendum on the facts. The latest polling says that a very appropriate 52% of British people now want a final say vote, and Labour supporters are most keen at 65%. Naomi, you were at the event. How, how was it? Well, I mean, I'm lucky that since the general election last year, snap general election, I've been able to sit in the confines of this studio sort of every other week with fellow Romaniacs broadcasting out to lots of other Romaniacs, and it's really good for the soul. And what Sunday's event was, was that kind of vibe on steroids. Um, So it was an event that was absolutely brilliant at rallying the troops, giving them a much-needed sort of pepping up. And and I think that's, you know, very important because it's those delegates that are going to have to go out and help us shift 
opinion in the country. They're the ones that have got to go back into their areas and start having conversations with leavers. And, and you know, this isn't something that, that any of us can do on our own. However, I don't think the organisers are under any illusion that this event will have swayed precisely anyone to change how they vote. It was also very much a London-based event. And the demographic of the audience there was older and very, very white and pretty male. Um, and I bumped into, you know, a huge supporter of the podcast, um, Tajinder Singh, who of Corner Shop fame. Uh, do go and uh, download our theme tune. And, you know, he was saying that when, when he got to the registration desk and you had to queue up where your surname was, so he was in the S to... Z list with me um, <clears throat> I'm obviously Z list he's not um, <laughs> very much A list but though he was the only sing he was the only sing whereas I'm being a smith <laughs> you know with reams and reams and reams of us so I think that sort of says a lot and also I think quite interestingly all of the coverage has framed it as cross-party support for a people's vote so framing it by political parties and the politicians rather than what I think the intention of it was to be was here are all these grassroots groups getting together under this banner of the one thing that unites all of us is that we bloody well want a people's vote. So I think, you know, some stuff to learn for the future, but I am really thrilled now that there is a convergence of messaging around this people's vote thing. I spent weeks working on a long feature about this anti-Brexit movement, to which this is kind of like the, the nice sort of twist at the end because they wouldn't tell me about it before it, <laughs> before it happened. And the key question that I've tried to answer is why has it taken so long for Remainers to unite behind a single idea? You know, just a few months ago, there's constant conversation about, you know, why is, why is everyone so kind of scattered? What's your take on that? Um, I think my take on it is that you've got Sunnis and Shias, Catholics and Protestants. There is no, there is rarely hatred that runs as deep. Although, as, in, as you pointed out, no Sunnis and Shias and in, in the election <laughs> yeah, forum. Quite, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, so intra-Nissine warfare is always sort of yeah. more difficult. And you know, you've had all these possibly unhelpful rumblings about a new party and actual new parties, um, and so people questioning intentions. You know, are you really trying to? help us get another referendum or, you know, to, to make Brexit less bad? Or are you actually just doing this because it's a great way to get profile for setting up something new because the factions within your own party are so divisive, particularly over this issue? And I think because, you know, they, you, you've got a lot of people who aren't funded to do this full time and really put a lot of thought and effort into it. Um, and we've seen that change recently, which is great. But for a long time, it was people with very good intentions and well-meaning, but, you know, not maybe having the discipline that you would normally have around organisations just because they were doing it in their spare time and evenings and weekends. Yeah, well, one of the main things I learned was that really that year, or, you know, almost a full year between the referendum and the election was just dead yeah there was a desert there yeah. was no kind of there was no energy there was very little optimism like you said all these kind of clashes between personalities and strategy disagreements were playing out mm. you know and and so it was almost as if like the process didn't even begin mm, mm. until I mean, and, and there's that year. sort of um organizational behavioral theory about teams you have forming, storming, norming, performing uh, when they come together, the sort of stages of a team. Um, is, this a, is, this a, is this a yeah, thing? Yeah. So, this so, is great. I so love this I thing. Think, I think for the first you know, year they were sort of forming and thinking about who's in, who's out, who's going to play, who isn't, which, which actors within the political arena are going to come on board and those that are going to sit it out. And then, they, then there was probably a bit of a storming phase of you know, who's going to lead, who's going to go in under which umbrella and all the rest of it. And now... We're at the performing stage. Because that thing you're saying about trying to foreground the, um, the sort of the broad based thing, the grassroots groups, 
um, one of the things one of the key players told me was this was also a critique during the referendum campaign. And he said, you know, he says that is a legitimate critique that it was too top down. So it's really hard um, with the media, as he said, so he says they're not going to take some bloke from Bath yeah. who's doing something sort of interesting again. They want a name. And as you said, the reporting of this, and it's no fault of the people doing the organising, but the reporting is like, oh, OK, there's... Layla from the Lib Dems, yeah, Caroline yeah. from the Greens, Professor Anna X from the Tories, and um, Chuka from Labour. You know, and that's the way that it's sort of framed, mm. and it is really hard to kind of bring up mm. um, all these all these sort of smaller groups. But you also need both because you also need to have those people that are going out and knocking on doors and doing all of the kind of you know the actual speaking to people and working out who's going to support your cause because. It's all well and good to have a politician standing up there getting the headlines on a Sunday, but then actually you need to carry that on. And, you know, very few organisations have been particularly successful at that. So, you know, UKIP did it pretty well. They managed to get out there and actually get, mm. you know, a grassroots campaign in yep. some areas. Uh, the Yes campaign for uh, Scottish Independence did it incredibly well, you know, got that kind of umbrella. But, you know, for, for the Yes campaign, we already had the might of the SNP, the might of the Green Party. We already had all of those campaigners lined up. So if you're going to do this, if it's going to happen um, and it's not going to be actually under a party banner, the only people that know how to knock doors, that know how mm, to yes. get the actual grassroots population behind you and out is political parties. Mm. So there almost does need to be that. That's why this idea of this kind of radical central party that's going to be created is very difficult for me because I think you know they might well get headlines, but actually doing that hard work to win anything electorally is really difficult and I can't see how they could possibly excite people enough. I don't think the centre is exciting enough to get new I, people I behind it. I agree and I've said so a few times on this podcast. Just just um, so listeners know, um, Best for Britain does something called Barnstorms and we do them all over the country, um, very you know, very much outside of London. So if you do want to, to do any of that grassroots stuff but not affiliated to a political party, then then do have a look at their Barnstorms website. Polling, polling seems to be sort of changing quite a lot. How much appetite do you think there is in Scotland for for this kind of final say, people's vote idea? I think it just depends who you speak to. I mean, people in Scotland obviously you know, voted in the majority to remain. I think you've probably got what you've got in the rest of the UK is that some people just think, I'm fed up with all of this Brexit stuff, don't talk to me about it again. And actually, we've had even more elections because we had the Scottish Independence referendum. We had, um, you know, last year we had the council election and the um, the general election. And, we've seen, and obviously we've got Scottish Parliament elections as well that happen. So my daughter, when she was four, had seen, what, eight elections, something like that, um, which is, is absolutely crazy. So you can understand why people are a bit fed up of the idea of elections. So I don't think there's a huge amount of excitement behind any drive for that. Obviously, there are people, the kind of people that listen to the Romaniacs podcast that, you know... Good, good would, people. I, absolutely. <laughs> the best. The very best people, clearly. Um, that, that would be, you know, that would do anything in order to ensure that a second uh, referendum on Brexit or a final say referendum, whatever you want to call it, on, on Brexit happens. Um, but, you know, I'm not sure there's that kind of level of, of passion and excitement Behind, you know, for the general population. Well, you say that, you know, obviously, second referendum is a is a phrase that I learned. You know, just sort of tests very badly because mm -hmm. it seems like, oh, this again. And mm -hmm. so the the whole framing is that it's actually no. We we had a referendum on whether to leave or not. It goes now that so much has changed. We need a separate referendum on actually what's going to happen. The in public having a final say yeah. is the thing that the public 
are are keenest on, but they're still not overwhelmingly keen on it. No, but Scotland. I just wonder with the with the um, for the SNP because that would be, I suppose, a referendum on on exactly the same issue. Do you find that there is a problem there in terms of getting sort of enthusiasm for a second referendum? Is it is when there has been one? Is it is it hard to sort of get people to do? Um, well, given that what we're trying to do with independence is something similar, get you know people excited for a second mm. independence referendum. I, I think it's you know we've we've said in terms of the the second uh, referendum or a, or a public say on on Brexit that we're not opposed to it. We want to you know see, kind of see what what pans out in relation to this, um, and I think that's probably a fairly sensible way to go. But you know it feels to me like a lot of the the general public we've not managed to inspire the excitement in the general public that we need to if we're going to have a public say on Brexit, on the end deal, on whatever it looks like. If we're going to have that, we need to get the public excited because we will be hammered if we don't get a decent turnout. Yeah, that's the truth. And then you've got whole legitimacy issues. Peter, how much do you... How likely do you think it is that this will, will happen? Because this really is... They they put all their eggs into this basket. How do you rate its chances? It, I think it's we're in the it, everything to play for stage. That it could just fizzle away, and you know you do have the government actively going round stirring up complacency, as we mentioned in a previous podcast about this. To hope just people just say fine, you negotiate what you can, and we'll accept it. it but there is a lot. There's a lot to, to play for. We've got all these parliamentary votes on the main withdrawal bill and all the other bills that have to be passed for Brexit. These are all opportunities for Parliament to do a better job. There's lots and lots of things that can be done with, with, with the campaign, as Naomi's been saying. And there's young people as well. Young people are overwhelmingly against Brexit. And there's one thing that young people are good at, it's arguing with their parents. That, uh, that may swing things. If more young people said to their grumpy old Brexity uncle or auntie or whatever, you know, you're, you're screwing my future here. Why are we doing this? Why can't we just have a, why can't we just have a second vote, a proper vote on this, a proper people's vote on the thing. Just, it, it, they, they can be doing a lot on this and I can see things changing. If you remember Emily Thornberry saying some weeks back that it would take a 90% or something vote for, a, 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 for what was then being called the second referendum and I disagreed with that at the time. I thought you could, you could get by with 60% as long as those 60% really want it and the others don't really care. At the moment we've got about 52%, 31% against the second referendum against people's vote. I must correct myself and about 17% undecided. We're going to have like a second referendum swear jar. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Yes, must, yeah, we must stop saying that. As you were saying, Naomi, with the barnstorms, I think, I think the thing that kind of, you know, listeners and activists can do is, is one is, is like working out the most productive way to talk to sort of, you know, waveringly voters that they may know and to, I mean, also to put pressure on, on their MPs. Yeah. But it seems like there's a two... First, you've got to defeat the final deal mm. and get legislation for the referendum mm. and then but also you've got to be thinking about this now yep. win that referendum and I suppose best Britain's focus is very much on how do you talk to people and that does not involve waving uh, Romaniacs merch <laughs> <laughs> and probably doesn't involve some of the key figures that you know have been involved traditionally today it's about as Peter said getting those young people to start being spokesperson you know our future our choice being a brilliant example of that getting a diverse group of spokespeople into this yeah. part of fighting for it yeah. the other big event this week was the Windrush debacle in which the government finally admitted it had badly let down generations of British residents who'd come to the UK from the Caribbean as children worked and paid taxes all their lives and yet are now being told they were illegal immigrants all along the Tottenham MP David Lammy a favourite of the show, called it a day of national shame as Amber Rudd was forced to apologise for the appalling treatment these innocent people have been put through. 
Every day this week, a further embarrassment emerged from the government's initial refusal to meet Caribbean leaders to discuss the issue. To details such as the Home Office's demands for documentary evidence for every year of an applicant's stay in the UK, to the Home Office's tone-deaf advice to de- deportees to talk Jamaican in a country they never lived in <laughs> since childhood. Re- did you read the the advice to people returning to Jamaica? Mm-hmm. It was the most extraordinary thing. There was one. It was sort of don't. It was something like don't befriend people you don't know or something. Oh yeah. Oh, I did see something <laughs> like, like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, like I, this really. I mean, astonishingly offensive. It was also don't don't walk alone at night. Well, if you don't know anybody in Jamaica, how else are you going to get <laughs> to places? <laughs> I just. I'm. I. You know. One of the most horrible things since being an MP is sitting around the table. I've got a huge Nigerian population in my constituency. So sitting around the table with somebody from Nigeria that says the UK government is trying to deport me. You know, they've got they've got no recourse to public funds, which means they, they can't work, they can't um, claim benefits, they can't, you know, basically local churches are having to put people up because there's not really another way around it. The Home Office has created a hostile environment and I can't believe they're surprised that they accidentally caught some people who were here legitimately. Because basically that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to get rid of as many people as possible. They were trying to meet their migration cap at, you know, all costs. That was the most important thing for them. So it's, I'm completely unsurprised this has happened. You know, it's horrible. But actually, if you look into the future, if you think about what's going to happen with all of the the EU nationals living here who are supposed to be um, applying for for settled status, you know, I have no confidence the Home Office is not going to screw this one up as well. well. They they screwed it up with the people that have been here for decades. And now they're just like, oh no, trust us to sort out all the Mm. people that have only been here a few years. Peter, um, because you mentioned the the hostile environment. Indeed, yes. Who could have thought that would go wrong? (laughs) Um, And as as David Lammy said, if you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Could you do a sort of to give us a short history of this hostile environment idea and Theresa May's role in it. Mm. So David Cameron government set this completely unrealistic and stupid target of getting net migration down to the tens of thousands. It wasn't working. Theresa May, uh, Home Secretary in 2012, says, right, we're going to create the hostile environment and we're going to bring in uh, some new immigration laws which came along in the following years. So basically turns everybody into an immigration officer. Employers, landlords, schools for children, you know, uh, universities, banks, doctors, local government, everyone's got to to rat on everybody else and faces uh, penalties if they don't. The second element, of course, is to strip away all the welfare benefits Benefits to anybody unless they can absolutely prove that they have the entire and, it's, and the onus is on them at their expense to do all of this. So all of that has happened. There's also the deport first, appeal later policy and make it harder to appeal. Just shove people out the door as quickly as you can and have everybody reporting on them and obstructing them at every turn. That's that's what it's all about. But of course they do have people who came came over in, in what you call the Windrush generation. They do have their landing cards, which the government's been looking after, <laughs> which should yeah, confirm well, their status. Yes, yeah, so which strangely got set on fire or something. Yeah. I mean, I think this is exactly what happens when you attempt to come across as draconian, um, so determined to be fierce that you just come across as completely inhuman. And they were warned that, you know, this should be no surprise. So Runnymede Trust, which did brilliant work in this area, have been warning them since 2010 that this would happen. Uh, you know, it's just such an unforced error, but one that has such horrifically inhuman consequences for people. But immigration is good. Immigration is of economic Amen. benefit. Here, here. You yeah. know, in, in Scotland's population is declining. We need people to come and live and work in in our country. We need, you know, actually, given that our population is declining, we need people to come and live in Scotland. You know, just to be carers. Never mind anything else. And 
you know, oh, Look, even the Daily so Mail agrees with us on this one. They went for Theresa. That's always that's always unnerving, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. When you read a headline in the Daily Mail, you think, I agree oh. with that. What's wrong with me? <laughs> well, there's the thing is that you know that there was a time when there were countries like uh, the United States and Brazil and so on that re- that really re- realised that we need more people to build the nation and we need to bring people from all over the place to build the nation, mm. and that's just been lost with this mm. this kind of petty mindedness thing. I think <laughs> what, what this exposes in terms of Brexit is that. Brexit is once and for all now absolutely exposed for being a xenophobic agenda, doing so under the cloak of Britishness. Um, you, it's not Britishness, it's hateful, nasty parties. Do you think the Daily Mail, which is having one of its kind of like sporadic, like be nice to people who aren't white <laughs> phases, <laughs> it's first since Stephen Lawrence, are they going to try and make a distinction between the kind of the good immigrants, you know, who made Britain great after the war, you know, the good Commonwealth immigrants, and the bad EU immigrants? Do you think that there's a kind of way that, 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 that this sort of enormous sympathy that they're showing now is, is going to be used as a sort of stick to beat the Romanians with? I, I don't want to try and guess the editorial the, consistency the, or lack the, of it. The answer is daily yes. but, but let's face it, almost <laughs> certainly yes. And, and they'll link it to wages and it's, you know, these Eastern Europeans driving down our wages. But there's no way, there's no way the, the Daily Mail are ever going to be positive about my Nigerian Commonwealth immigrants <laughs> because they're just not. It's only Caribbean immigrants mm. because they're, you know, just about British enough to pass mm. the, da- the Daily Mail's test. Something to do with playing, playing cricket, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, there is no question this is absolutely in Theresa May's court. This was her. This was her that was been the most anti-immigration Home Secretary mm. that we've ever seen. She's now the most anti-immigration Prime Minister that we've, we've seen in a very, very long time. And this is her fault. It's her that's created this hostile environment. It's her that has that has uh, you know caused this situation to happen. Mm. Um, and we cannot let her get away with it. Mm. Uh, one of the... Um the sort of anti-Brexit activists I was talking about said that the, there was a slight problem with messaging about how to characterise Brexit people because they went, are they, you know, sort of fanatics, ideological fanatics? Are they kind of just cruel and cynical or are they incompetent? And he was like, well, they're all of those things. But it's really hard to sort of label your opponents in all, you know, in all those ways. You almost need like one label. And it's sort of with Theresa May, it's almost like her incompetence covers up for her malice mm. because it's it's sort of like well she's she's sort of this sort of hopeless she's she so is hopeless malicious, but she's even more yeah, you assume that she's kind of like a decent person <laughs> do, doing badly and mm. it's just like but actually her record in immigration is is sort of shocking and the lack of compassion and empathy mm. and of course it started when she was this is and, and you think why is the home office behaving like this well where did it, the leadership come from and in the last few months we found out that you know she was covering up all of the evidence that the home office had themselves about international students not overstaying their visas and that whole thing being a complete red herring and yet still hasn't taken international students out of the tens of thousands migration target i think the lesson the lesson for me is um uh, she's been doing all this and previous administrations and all this to pacify a small but significant minority of people who are just ignorant of the facts about immigration. It's been shown time and time again that immigration does not lower wages, it does not take people out of jobs, it is good for the economy, it produces revenue for public services and it also produces uh, skilled workers for the public services as well. But there is an ignorant minority in the country, I'm not a politician, I can call them ignorant and I'm, I have no regrets, regrets about that, who are, who are very vocal and the politicians make the big mistake, as Theresa May has made, of trying to appease them. You can't appease them them, you should oppose them. 
finally, hostilities are resuming in Parliament after the Easter break. By the time you hear this, you may well know the results. But when we recorded on Wednesday, it looked a lot like the Lords were about to defeat the government on the withdrawal bill, specifically on cross-bencher Lord Kerr's amendment that would enable us to stay in a customs union not the Customs Union, with the EU. The government has been leaking its expectation of defeat like a broken fridge. But there are further six potential collapses for the government of the Lords, including the infamous Henry VIII powers and the Charter of Fundamental Rights. Uh, do we think the Lords can, can really sort of stop Brexit or water it down so much that it's Brexit in name only? I think it's worth just saying that what a sad and pathetic excuse for a democracy we really are when it's the unelected chamber that is having to provide decent, civilised scrutiny uh, and response to Brexit, which the Commons just can't, or in the case of the Labour Party, just won't uh, currently. Um, So, yeah, I think the the Lords can have an impact. Just to be clear, this particular amendment about the customs union um, will require ministers to report what efforts they have made to secure a customs union uh, by the end of October. It doesn't explicitly say that Britain must reach a deal uh, on such a union. Um, So some people have just sort of described it as giving oxygen to EU supporters in the Commons. Um, But yes, it's a delaying tactic. It should hopefully give the Commons some options. And I think that's really what it's designed to do rather than to, you know, amend the bill and, and change legislation completely. It's about sort of helping out the, the, the pro EU people back in the Commons. Kirsty, does this make you feel warmly towards the House of Lords? No. <laughs> in a word. You know what? The, the House of Lords should not be an unelected body. You know, people talk about how undemocratic they believe the EU is. The House of Lords is not elected. It's still got 92 hereditary peers in it. It's still got people from um, the Church of England. These things should not be happening. They should not be in charge of making decisions for the country. Um, and, you know, so that's a kind of full stop on that. However, um, they are providing a level of scrutiny here. Uh, they are putting forward some things that people weren't able to to put forward in the Commons. We've got a very different system in the Commons and the Lords scrutinises bills line by line and allows more time in order to go through things, whereas we can't do that. They can have much more, many more votes than we can, for example. Um, and that's not because they are an unelected chamber. They could do all of that if they were an elected chamber. and a crazy constitution. <laughs> they, they would do so much better if they were an elected chamber because they would be actual experts rather than people that were experts 30 years ago in whatever it is they happen to be put into the House of Lords for. Isn't it strange, that, that, you know, we've got to look at the polls, that Labour are still, in spite of all the problems, to put them politely, that the government is having, Labour is still level-pegging with the Conservatives, and the House of Lords is sort of the opposition. I mean, it's, it's, it is a very strange state of affairs, isn't it? I cannot believe how incompetent Labour have been. I'm really angry with them. I, you know, we, the only way that in the Commons that we can defeat the government is if Labour mm. actually get their act together mm. and all point in the same direction, which, you know, happens every six months by accident. Uh, if they actually were a competent, coherent opposition, it'd be much easier for the SNP to, to work with them. So, you know, there are some things that, that we have we have debates on. And we speak to the Labour front bench and we say, right, how are you guys planning to vote on this? And they say, right, we're going to vote for this clause or for this amendment. And then they change their minds an hour before the vote. And, you know, you've kind of all lined up, you know, mm-hmm. intending to defeat the government. They are completely incoherent mm-hmm. and in chaos. And it doesn't help that it's not their A-team on the front bench in the main. Some of them are very good, but it's generally not their A-team. Mm-hmm. So I really wish they would get their act together. And I don't know what I can do to fix that, but they're just rubbish. Well, well someone <laughs> described this to me recently as a sort of, uh, a, since the last election, like a backbencher's parliament. And it's true that a lot of the MPs that, uh, you know, not, not exclusively, but, a lot of the MPs that, that seem to be making the running on certain issues, I mean, David Lammy's a great example there, 
you know, they're not on the front bench. I for, you know, I, I often forget who's on the Labour front bench. Barry you know, Huge. Right, and Bergen. I mean, I've got huge admiration for, oh yeah, Angela Rayner is fantastic. I like Kelly Thornbury. I mean, there's some strong people yeah. there, but, but just the... Yeah. The idea that there's all this kind of there is actually coherent thinking, strategic thinking and, and intelligence and passion in the Labour Party, mm-hmm. but it just doesn't seem to be driving the front bench. I, I agree. And so, you know, for, for the purposes of the listeners, the suggestion that the Lords could stop Brexit are wildly exaggerated. Uh, they will amend it. But to everyone listening, it's your MPs and particularly your if you're in a Labour constituency, your Labour MPs that really need to hear from you on this because it is going to be the Commons that, that you know, delivers for Remain if, if we need them to. So it's, it is all about concentrating on them and giving them backbone and, and, and trying to shore up that front bench. Well, I'll be on to my local MP, Mr Jay Corbyn, um, <laughs> to do the right thing. Please do. We've been talking to her throughout the show. It's Kirsty Blackman, the SNP's deputy leader in Westminster and frequent flyer from Aberdeen North, where she's been an MP since 2015. You're the SNP spokesperson on the economy. What impact did the referendum have on the sort of Scottish independence cause? I remember the day after, it suddenly seemed there was a huge surge of just like, fuck this, <laughs> we're going to go our own way. Um, you know, sort of coming up for two years later, what's, what effect has it had, do you think? Well, in the Scottish elections in 2016, it said in our manifesto, we reserve the right to hold another independence referendum if, for example, the UK votes to come out of the EU, but Scotland votes to remain. Not actually thinking that that would happen, <laughs> and you know we wrote that into, uh, but it did happen because no, because not that many people genuinely thought that the UK would vote to leave the EU because what a stupid decision who <laughs> who would decide that that was a good idea, um, and then and then that did happen, and you know so you know day one after the the Brexit referendum it was bizarre, I felt very different the day after the Brexit referendum to how I felt after the Scottish independence referendum. Scottish independence referendum, I had this idea in my head of what Scotland could look like if it was an independent country, and I've still got that idea in my head. And I felt like my my hopes had been dashed. I'd had this picture of where I wanted to go and my hopes had been dashed. But my status quo had remained. Whereas after the Brexit referendum, I felt like my current life had been deconstructed. Mm. And, you know, it was almost more difficult to come to terms with that, despite the fact that I've been campaigning for Scottish independence for my entire life. Um, It was almost harder to kind of get over that. And I can understand why so many people in Scotland were so upset and so devastated by the result. And actually a lot of people who hadn't historically supported us, a lot of people who were maybe um, in a kind of more middle class category and would have not generally voted SNP um, you know outside our core demographics suddenly thought actually I want my child to be able to take part in Erasmus and you know those things are important to me it's important to have that ability to travel and things like that so there was a real feeling that kind of um, very early stage after the referendum that we picked up a huge amount of, of support And but then in terms of what happened after the referendum I think probably the same that's happened everywhere else. You didn't have that immediate economic calamity that had been predicted by people. So people didn't immediately think, right, you know, um, we must do something about this. So it kind of has just continued to simmer on rather than being that huge uprising that it that it could have been. Because, I mean, I, th- I think that, that a lot of people have felt, um, you know, out, outside of Scotland, um, that after the last referendum, you know, that it was such a sort of painful and divisive thing. And I know that some people felt that about the... The Scottish referendum as well. I know a kind of uh, a sort of Scottish sort of no voter who just was in like agony for the whole 
thing. And there were certainly things that came out of that referendum, including the phrase sort of project fear. And there were, there were certain ways in which it kind of it showed some of the things that were going to happen so next time. Do you I mean, obviously, I mean, I suppose you, you, you need a referendum to achieve what you want. But did the I suppose the kind of nastiness and the, the kind of particular rancor of the Brexit referendum make you feel uh, any differently about that kind of form of decision making or is there's a way of avoiding that? I felt like the Brexit referendum was much more divisive and it was much more difficult for, for me and many people I know than the Scottish independence referendum had been. It felt like it was much more xenophobic. It was much more kind of attacking the, the cultural and social ideas that I had in my head and that I believed Scotland should be. Um, so I felt like it was it was much more of a kind of devastating result, I suppose, uh, and, and a devastating lead up to it because of the, the two camps were were very different. And I was thinking, but you don't believe in my values, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the Brexit referendum, mm-hmm. whereas in the Scottish independence referendum, you know, although people yeah. believe in, in the United Kingdom, they still believe in my values. We still have this shared view of, of how Scotland should look. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it felt like it was more yeah. much more of a two camps thing for me than the independence mm-hmm. referendum had been. I think we should have uh, another independence referendum. I think Scotland should be an independent country. I know that people feel passionately about keeping the United Kingdom together, but the way that I've explained it to people is that, you know, we're on this giant ship and it's sinking and we've got a lifeboat. Um, And it's not about, you know, it's not about... Um, trying to sink everybody else faster. It's just the fact that we've got a lifeboat that we can get on and we'd quite like to get on that lifeboat, actually. And it's not trying to make life worse for anybody else. It's just trying to ensure that we've got the ability to... To, to get on that line. I think we should bring back Scotland or whatever it was called. Do you remember the oh, day yeah. after the election? Everyone was yeah, just like, like, what if London, Scotland somehow yeah, yeah. <laughs> could just like team up? That sounds great to me. Brilliant. Yeah. Geographically <laughs> tricky. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a tunnel, I'm sure. We fine. <laughs> we'll build something. But create lots of jobs. There's, um, ref- uh, the, after the um, Brexit referendum, do you think the real- realism has grown in Scotland that unfortunately it's not going to be possible f- for Scotland to say, right, you have Brexit, we're, we're staying in the a- EU, that Scotland won't be able to do that in a hurry? H- has that sort of sunk into people's minds that it actually would be tough for Scotland once it gained independence to reapply and get in and go through all the chapters and so on? I don't think so. I don't think um, I don't think people are any more concerned about that than they were before. Uh, you know, in 2014, I don't think that's that's more of a concern. You know, because we currently fulfil all of the obligations that you need to fulfil when you're when you're in the EU. And although people have spoken about this idea of there being a queue, it's not a kind of typical queue in that the people that are at the end of the queue do not stay at the end of the queue. It's the people that are you know able to tick all of the boxes first that get to the that get to the head of the queue. And I think Scotland would be in a pretty good position to do that. And I've got a quick question about um, political culture and the pro-internationalism in Scotland compared to the political culture in England and, and to an extent Wales. Like, why are Scots so much more open to the rest of the UK? I mean, you know, earlier on you touched on um, low levels of immigration, but surely it isn't just that. Um, and and could maybe I mean, as I was sort of thinking about it, is is it partly to sort of set yourselves apart from the English? You know, the English are closed-minded, so we'll be open-minded. Or, or is there something else? What makes its political culture so open? You know, I have uh, toyed in my head with the fact that are we just trying to be as, as different as we can be? Um, people people have said to me in the past that Scottish 
British football fans are so well behaved because the English ones are not. Um, <laughs> but I, you know what? I don't think that's the case. I think it's just that there, there is. Uh, we've been structured differently for a very long time. We've had different legal systems for a very long time. We have had just a different. Um, way of structuring our society. We're a much more kind of communitarian society in mm. Scotland and that's just the way that our society was created and grew. So we have a situation where in Scotland there there is much, uh, obviously there are, you know, lords and things like that and we have had a bit of that kind of historical mm. hierarchical culture but not so much as there, yeah. there has been down here and we've always had a lot of kind of the, the people at the bottom I suppose. Mm. Um, and a healthy dose of Presbyterian pragmatism thrown in and it would just be a, a good thing for us to stay in because it's practical. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think pragmatism is a, good, is a good word to describe some of our feeling. Recently, the SNP government at Holyrood passed this continuity bill. Um, to, uh, as I understand it, the idea is that this is Scotland saying, well, if these powers do end up being passed back from the European Union, they belong to Scotland, not to Westminster, things like, I think it's agriculture, fisheries, yeah. things like that. And now uh, the government in Westminster is saying, we're going to take you to the Supreme Court. And likewise, the Welsh administration has done the same thing. What's what's going on here? What's the what's the ultimate purpose of, of this, given that it'll, it'll actually be in the Brexit withdrawal bill, I presume, which powers go back to Scotland? So uh, part of the problem with the EU withdrawal bill, from the point of view of both the Scottish and Welsh governments, is that Clause 11 in that bill was wholly inadequate. Because it basically says anything that's coming back from the EU, the UK government will decide on how it's going to work and Scotland and Wales won't get a say. It's pretty much what Clause 11 says. Now, we've argued all the way along that Clause 11 is wrong and that we're unhappy with that. Scottish and Welsh governments have been consistent in their voice. Obviously, Northern Ireland doesn't have a government, so it's not in a position to be able to have those conversations. Um, so, you know, we've, we've been really clear about this. The government was absolutely sh- sh- clear that it was going to table amendments to Clause 11 at the report stage, and then it didn't. Um, the Because of the fact that it affects devolved settlements... Scotland, it has to move a legislative consent motion. And this was Scotland moving a legislative consent motion, but it was, it was saying, that in terms of this, what's called the continuity bill in Scotland, it was saying, we're not happy with the way this is drafted. We're not happy that you don't have to get the consent of the Scottish Parliament in order to change things, which are devolved competencies. So we disagree with this and we think that we should be consulted. So that the point is that you would be satisfied, the SNP would be satisfied and would take this away, were the government to spell out properly in the, the Brexit withdrawal bill, this uh, on Brexit, this and this and this and this will go back to the Scottish Parliament, uh, likewise the Welsh Parliament. That's, the clarity would be enough for you, is that right? Well, the, the other thing, so the UK government said it wants to have national frameworks in things like agriculture and fisheries. It's not been all that clear about which things it wants national frameworks in, but that's what it said. Um, and actually, we've, we've, not, we've not said that we're completely against the idea of national frameworks, but what we're against is in areas that it's devolved, Scotland shouldn't just be consulted on these, Scotland should have a say because this is, you know, our parliament has responsibility for agriculture and fisheries. Therefore, we should have, you know, a, a veto, if you like. We should have a final say on whether or not the, the framework is acceptable to us, not just be consulted. So you, you'd have is... a double lack of say. You'd have Britain essentially following EU regulations uh, and then uh, Holyrood having to follow Westminster regulations. And, and this, is, this is fundamentally altering the devolved settlement that was agreed, it was voted for and referendum by the Scottish, you know, the Scottish people. This is supposed to be part of the devolved settlement, and they're altering it by way of the EU withdrawal bill. So now, what's happened is the continuity bill that was moved in the Scottish Parliament. The UK government has decided 
to challenge it in the Supreme Court. They've not actually come to Parliament and made a statement. They've had to be dragged to answer an urgent question on this, which is absolutely ridiculous, mm. honestly. Um, it's not democracy at work. But they are fundamentally altering the devolved settlement. And actually, people in Scotland, not just the Scottish Parliament, are really unhappy about that. Obviously, if you, tr- don't, you don't have to try very hard to see echoes of Catalonia with this, that the, uh, the, the part of the union that wants to break away presents something that causes a rift and makes presents that, that part of the, the union as being disadvantaged as a, as a way of setting things up for the next independence referendum. Is there, isn't there a little tiny touch of that in, in, in setting up for the Scottish people, look, this is why we need independence? We're supposed to be some kind of partnership of equals. They've said to us, Scotland is, you know, during the, the course of the independence referendum, they said Scotland should have a say, and they haven't allowed us to have a say. They are taking away some of our devolved powers without, you know, even consultation. If they had got around the table and properly agreed with Scottish and Welsh governments what was going to be in the amendment clause 11, and actually, if they'd actually moved it at report stage, which is when they said they would move it, then we would be in a much better position. So they have screwed up time and time again over this. And now taking us to the Supreme Court is just um, ridiculous. I can't believe they're doing it, honestly. <laughs> it's embarrassing. We have a few listeners' questions from Twitter. Neil Murphy asks, what would you prefer, no Brexit and Scotland remains part of the UK, or Brexit and the misery that comes with it with a chance to win a second independence referendum? That's a horrible question. (laughs) (laughs) Neil, don't ask questions like that. Um, It's the word misery really puts you on the spot there, doesn't it? it, It's all misery. I mean, you know, we've got a situation where we are being told what to do by a Tory government that we completely disagree with. And that is honestly miserable. Um, We don't generally vote Tory, certainly not in any numbers for quite a long time. And yet we have a situation where this migration cap is being is being pursued. Um, I have in my head uh, this image of a, a socially just Scotland that I want. For me, that only works if we get independence. For me, that also only works if we remain in the EU or if we go back into the EU after whatever happens. So I don't really want to choose. It's not a good choice. <laughs> so it's asking for a friend, though. Uh, <laughs> in the event that you were independent and you're your own country, what would the citizenship requirement be uh, and could it be extended to great-grandparents, not just grandparents, please? <laughs> uh, the citizenship requirements that were in our white paper were fairly flexible. Uh, right. The uh, Scottish... We're all Scottish now, right? <laughs> all Remainers are Scottish. Right. <laughs> if you want to come to Scotland, you'd be most <laughs> welcome you. and we'll do what we can about having a flexible immigration policy, particularly if you're a teacher and nurse and want to come work in Aberdeen, that'd be great. And if you had, if we'd had a people's vote and a second independence referendum, would the people of Scotland have like a referendum loyalty card entitling them to like a free <laughs> yeah. bonus referendum yes. of their choice at the end of all of this voting? Well, given, given we've had the Brexit one, we've had the Scottish independence one, we've had the AV one. Oh, yeah. You know, in, don't in forget recent, that. That was, that was a referendum. That that's, was that's you a real know, deep cut incredibly cut important. That one. You know, we've had a lot of referenda recently. I didn't even know the the you know any kind of plural word for referendums before <laughs> before this. But a loyalty card would be great. And I don't know that I want another one. <laughs> Gangle Sprocket, come on, man, have some dignity. Asks, 
How does leaving the EU differ from leaving the UK, especially as you plan to keep the currency, the Queen and open borders? Don't the S&P want the benefits of the UK without being in the UK? Kirsty's face suggests it's not like this question. <laughs> it's, it's not like that. Um, I spoke earlier about the fact that, you know, this, this is about a kind of level of civic nationalism. It's not about a level of, of ethnic nationalism. It is about us being able to make our own democratic choices and being able to, to go our own direction. So just now you've got a situation where in Glasgow we're trying to have a place where you can uh, consume drugs legally basically it's a called a drug consumption room it's a very good thing for ensuring that people have a safe place to take drugs mm-hmm. we can't do that because the UK government says that we can't do it now that's not on we should be able to make that own decision for our, our people in Scotland in order to have the public health benefits that will come with that so that's what I'm going for is, is the fact that this is about democratic choices if you're part of the EU you've chosen to join that club, you are choosing to sign up to it. We have not had a choice for, you know, well, 300 years ago we decided that we would we would join with with England, but it's not um, it's not not a real choice that we've had for some time. And um, Steve Yates asks, are UK politicians? He names no names with their own shows on RT, little more than Putin's puppets. I do not agree with politicians going on RT. Um, I especially do not agree with politicians taking money for going on RT. I don't think they should be doing that. Um, Alex Salmond is an individual and he is no longer an elected SNP politician and therefore he has chosen to have a show on RT. And finally, Fosh, who's an enthusiastic Scottish nationalist, asks, who within Labour and Conservatives can we work with? Who opposes our desire to be independent but respects our shared values and wouldn't let Indy get in the way of working together? I think actually what's happened in terms of since Brexit, we have had a situation where there have been politicians with shared values, in, in fact, including politicians like Anna Soubry, you know, mm-hmm. across the other side of the floor, who we have been able to have a working relationship with. So Anna Soubry, Chaka Amuna, even some of the people who are, you know, ardently pro-UK and anti-independence. Anna Soubry is not in favour of Scottish independence yeah. in the slightest. But we can work together in an issue by issue basis. And I think that's what we're trying to do wherever possible. As was said earlier, we're fairly pragmatic. Well, the all-party parliamentary group on EU relations seems to be it's sort of a model of cross-party cooperation, it seems. It is. Yeah. And, um, on the 9th of January, it was the SNP, I think, that convened that um, leaders' meeting. And Nicola was there and Vince was there and Caroline was there. And you empty chaired Corbyn. You know, how much is it hurting Labour in Scotland to just not wanting to collaborate on issues like this? And we, Liz Savile-Roberts was also there from, from Plaid, I think. Um, yes, or, sorry. Um, yeah. uh, certainly. Uh, maybe Leanne from Plaid. I'm not sure mm-hmm, who it was. Mm-hmm. Um, it is hurting Labour in Scotland. It's hurting Labour in Scotland that they are not taking a, a good pro-European line on this. Um, and I think it's it's causing problems. I mean, I think Corbyn's pretty much been told not to come to Scotland anymore mm. because he just causes more problems than, than he solves when he comes <laughs> when he comes up to visit us. It's the Hadrian's Wall and he's just barred. <laughs> Finally, it's time to choose something to go in our Brexit time capsule. Each week we're going to save something that we'll need once we've left the EU, if we leave the EU, which we won't because of the people's vote, or something that we'll miss once we've gone. We've had cheap comics. That's the most important one the 1.92 million cars that we would have manufactured if we hadn't left, and the entire United Kingdom. <laughs> and my tanks, I've just been on holiday to Rome, um, was like short passport queues and the sort of sense of community that comes with the short passport mm-hmm. queue, that there's a kind of a, a Rome airport, and I'm not sure if this is like a standard thing, but there's like a map of the, the, you know, the world, mm-hmm. and it's got Europe coloured in somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, if you're in this colour bit, come this way. Yeah. And just the idea that that, that, you know, that Britain would just sort of lose that 
declaration and then you're just like with the rest of the world and mm. it was one of those things where like I don't mind queuing that much but it was one of those things that just a really small thing that, that, that dramatised like the kind of the emotional wrench of sort of feeling like through no fault of my own I'm being expelled mm. from this it's just you're like no you have to stand taken away yeah, from it's like you have to stand over there now and just the, just the whole mechanics of handing over your passport and, and, and mm. all that it just really it made it quite visceral you know, when I'm just generally embedded in, yeah. like, you know, policy and trying to understand what Ian and Peter are saying. Um, <laughs> so, yes, reasonably length passport cues. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks to Kirsty Blackman of the SNP. What are you up to next? I'm going back to Parliament to spend the rest of the afternoon in Parliament. I've got some prep to do for a debate. Good, good debate? Uh, a debate on oil and gas. So incredibly relevant for my ah. constituency. Um, you know, inc- exciting possibilities for the future. Believe it or not, oil is, is running out, but not as quickly as people suggest it's running out. Thanks also to Naomi and Peter. We'll see you next time. For this week's foreign language clip, we've got the return of one of our rock and roll Romaniacs. It's Sweden's Glenn Johansson from indie band Echo Belly. Storbritannien, walking up now. Det var bara en rådgivande folkomröstning. Now raise your glasses as we play out with Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thanks to our Patreon backers. It's thanks from me to Gerhard Blab, Matt Brighton, Daniel Feynman, Michael Smith and Sarah Hill. Hello and thanks from me to Graham Churchard, Chris R. Dillon, Carl with a C, Richard Smith and Simon Collard. And finally, many thanks from me to Nicola Holmes, Sarah Calamassi, Christine Fraser, Matt, probably not the cartoonist, and Robin Langford. See you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Densky with Naomi Smith and Peter Collins. Studio production was by Jack Claremont. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.